welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm Anthony Whitaker, and it's fantastic to have you here with me. Today, I have another great guest, so let's jump straight in and get started. With the podcast, I consciously strive to have a diverse range of guests because if I were you, I'd want the full gamut of what the hairdressing industry at large has to offer. Some of the guests are inspiring in their creativity, others are inspiring in their business acumen. Others are inspiring in the technology that they bring to the industry. And others are people who inspire me and hopefully you for their contribution, the contribution that they make through this industry to a higher purpose and ultimately to make the world a better place for everyone. I think that today's guest comes under that category because he has selflessly taken on a cause that most of us don't want to talk about but it needs to be talked about. Most people at some point in their life will say something like, something needs to be done about it, or someone needs to do something about it. But today's guest has selflessly put his hand up to be that someone. His name is Tom Chapman. And amongst other things, he's a hairdresser, barber, educator, and founder of the Lions Barber Collective, which is an international collection of barbers who've come together to help raise awareness for the prevention of suicide. In today's podcast, we'll discuss the unique position that barbers are in when it comes to raising awareness about suicide and mental health. We'll also talk about the movie titled The 1.7 Million Pound Haircut and how to ask someone if they're feeling okay and what to do about it if they aren't, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Tom. Hi, Anthony. Thank you ever so much. It's an honor to be here. It's really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, And I'm really excited about it. And I know our listeners will get an awful lot from today. But uh, before we uh, dig in, I want to start by asking you uh, to tell us, you know, exactly uh, who is Tom Chapman? I know that you were a musician. Uh, I know that you then got into hairdressing. You then became a barber. You're you're an author. You're a podcaster. Um, You've had a a very interesting and exciting journey. So uh, tell us you know, about that journey? Um, So I was born in Maidstone in Kent, which is in the southeast of England. And I moved around a lot as a kid. My parents moved and I moved all over over the place. Um, And they were entrepreneurs. So I learned a lot from them. And I think that's why I've done lots of different things. They worked in the film industry. They worked in catering. They worked in hotels. They did all sorts of things. So I think that's where my my sort of uh, aspirations for different interests in different paths lied. Like you said, I was... uh, Started off telling guys a hairdresser, very quickly came into uh, contact with men's hair mostly because the the girls around me didn't want to do the men's hair, so they always ended up in my chair. I found a love for barbering, um, and that kind of progressed, and I ended up having my own shop. Um, in 2000, uh, 2011, I opened that, uh, then sold it again in 2018 because the Lions Barber Collective took off. I had um, my 
uh, sort of platform work, traveling the world, doing that kind of thing, global barber director, international educator, and a young family. And I was just juggling too many things. So I shut the shop down, focused on what was my passion really was the charity and the Lions Barber Collective. But um, my uh, my sort of income came from the, the sort of platform work and the traveling the world, cutting hair and doing all that sort of stuff. It gave me the ability to have a bit of freedom, enabled me to write books. I wrote all my books when I was on planes, things like that, when there was nothing else left to do. Um, so I tried to use my time quite wisely in that and use them as platforms to mostly raise awareness around suicide prevention and, and mental health. Okay. Um, so I first heard about you because of a movie that uh, you were involved with making or making. And as soon as I read about it, I knew that I had to get you on the podcast. But to be honest, I've been putting it off because it's a hard topic to talk about. Uh, it's an emotional topic to talk about. And on reflection, that that is actually part of the problem, isn't it? That people are frightened to talk about it because it's not fun. It's not creative. It's not fashionable. And if they're like me, they'll probably get choked up about it in the process. But having said all that, I imagine that probably everyone listening to this either knows someone or knows someone that knows someone who has taken their own life. And so in some ways, we've all been touched by suicide and said phrases like, why didn't they talk to me? Or how did I miss the warning signs? So can I ask you to, to tell us about what happened in your life that led you to take on the task of raising awareness for the prevention of suicide and then seeing the opportunity for barbers and barbershops to take a really important role in that process? Well, uh, so it started off on a lunch break. I was walking through town and I bumped into my friend Alex, had a conversation with him, short, small talk that most people have in the street daily with their, their friends or people that they know, acquaintances, and we parted ways. And then a few days later, I had a, a message through social media telling me that Alex had actually taken his life. And I laid in bed that night. I didn't get much sleep at all, if any, with a lot of questions. Like you just mentioned, I wouldn't have realized anything was going wrong. Why would he do this? You know, why would he take his own life? What was wrong? Why did I no, no, Why didn't I notice anything when I saw him in the street? How did I not recognize that he was going through this? And what if I'd even asked him? What if I'd had the ability to say, are you really okay? And even are you even are you considering taking your own life? What would, would I have known what to do? Would I have had the confidence to say that? No. Would I have known what to do if he had said, yes, I am going to take my life or I'm thinking about it? I would have not known what to do either. And that kind of, that those thoughts, questions went through my head all night. And the next day I actually went to work because I had a full column of, of clients in the chair and I, I almost didn't, but I think I did because of the work ethic that was you know, ingrained in me by my parents, which I mentioned earlier on. I went down because I felt like I couldn't let anyone down. And in a role reversal to kind of what we're doing now, I spoke to my clients all day. They're good friends of mine. I had 10, 12 people in the chair and I, and I told them about what had happened. And although it didn't bring out Alex back, it did kind of give me a little bit of clarity on how I was feeling or thinking about things. And then we went to his funeral uh, it was at the crematorium. It was 
a, a reunion of people that I hadn't seen for a long time. Me and Alex have been friends, but due to the music industry, uh, sorry, the music scene, shall we say, sorry, in, in the area where I live, uh, being into alternative music and having a good friendship, that kind of, I don't know, you kind of get drift apart a little bit as you grow older because of these things like family and work and what have you. But it was a big reunion of people. And we were at the crematorium and I was one of the first people not to have a seat. So I was ushered to the front and I was stood actually next to Alex in his coffin, looking back at the room. And this room was full, overflowing with people still out, out of the door. Um, still were no seats for them. And I was, it was a very unique position to be in, to look at everyone's faces and their emotions and the questions, the sadness, the love that was in that room. Because normally you look at the back of someone's head and the person presenting. But I will never forget that moment looking at all that loss and looking at all those people that loved him and there for him, yet he felt so alone he couldn't say to any of them because every, at the wake, everyone said, I never knew. I never knew he was going through this. I knew he was having a tough time here. I knew he was going through that way, but I never knew he was contemplating taking his own life. And that was a real big a real big point for me, and that sticks with me. I can still see that visual in my mind, mind's eye. I can still see all those faces mm. and that loss. And that was kind of a driving force for me. And I remember saying at his wake that we need to do something. Something needs to happen and something needs to change. He's a young lad, he's mid-20s, and he felt that he had no one around him and he was struggling alone. Fast forward a year, I was I had my own business, so I was busy. I just, you know, life gets in the way, doesn't it? And I had an idea to create a collective of barbers. All of us get together and do photo shoots of haircuts and collaborate all of them into one book, which would be almost like a catalogue or a lookbook of men's haircut images. So if you went to the barbers, you'd go and have a look through and you'd pick what haircut you kind of wanted or inspiration for what haircut mm. you wanted. And the idea really was to collaborate with all the industry I know the high level industry professionals to do this, to raise money for charity um, through sponsorship and selling it out to people. The group got together. We discussed lots of different ideas. It was mostly around male cancers. And I just thought that we needed to do something that needed awareness for it. I could name loads of cancer awareness things. I could name all these charities. And one of the guys, Paul Mack from Ireland said to me, what about suicide prevention? And my mind was blown. I just thought how, how did I not even realize that that was a charity, that that was something you could raise money for, that there was support for suicide prevention or mental health? or And I've been affected by it so closely and hurt so deeply by the loss of somebody. How could I have not realized that that was available? So I looked into it, looked into it more. I thought, this is what we've definitely got to do. And I found out that suicide is the biggest killer in young men, as young people, sorry, in the UK under 45s, and nearly 80% of them are men. And then um, the project was meant to be a one-off project, maybe annual, developed and developed, developed, went on. And I very quickly realized, actually, we as barbers and hairdressers are often talked about as a poor man's therapist or a counselor or a confidant at the very least. And I related back to people coming and sitting in my chair and telling me all sorts of things. And I just thought, well, this could be so much more than just this one-off project. And actually, if there's 80% of, you know, the biggest killer being suicide, 80% of them are men, and men don't talk, yet men sit in my chair and open up to me all the time and tell me about all sorts of things because we're there for, as barbers and hairdressers, we're there for all the high and lows of everyone's life. We go there for, we're there for, 
you know, some of them have kids, first days at school, uh, interviews, new jobs, uh, first dates, engagements, weddings, christenings, um, all those amazing things, but also are there for redundancies and divorces and funerals and, you know, all those kinds of things as well. Um, because let's face it, people are going to get a haircut at those points. So we are here. And I thought, well, what can we do to make this better? How can we do, can we train barbers? Can we do this? Can we do that? And can we reach, essentially reach the unreachable? And that's kind of how we got to the Lions Barber Collective becoming a, a passion and a driving force for my life, really. Mm, okay. That is a really powerful, all the time you're talking, I, I couldn't help but just imagining that image of you sitting at the front of the church or the crematorium, whatever it was, and looking at the faces of everybody because that's not usually the view you see. You see the backs of everyone's heads in front of you. Or if you're in the front row, you know, you're not looking at everyone else's pain and anguish, but from where you're positioned, that is a I, I can understand what you what you mean by that. And that is seared into your, you know, into your mind, never to be forgot that, you know, that that sort of collection of pain and anguish and sorrow and and whatever it is. Um it was interesting, you know, this morning before we got on this call, I, um, you know, was planning what I was going to talk to you about. And uh, I mentioned to you, you know, before we started recording that, that I'd seen this thing on the television this morning on the news um, about suicide. And it was it was sort of like I was meant to see it because of the fact that I was going to talk to you this morning. Um, and it, it was interesting because the guy who was talking, he was actually a, an MP, you know, a, a member of parliament whose wife had uh, taken her own life um, some time ago from what I gather, because they had just, um, you know, they were, were celebrating her life in, a, in another way now by uh, naming a horse race after her. Uh, and he was talking about the changes that he was trying to get through Parliament. And um, so obviously I was really focused on that because of the fact that I knew I was going to talk to you. But he said something that really caught me. And it was that as a society, we put too much emphasis on the moment of crisis, meaning someone's debt, a uh, death, sorry, uh, uh, you, you know, when someone takes their own life, that, that is where the emphasis and the focus is. And he was saying that there is not enough focus put on the importance of being able to deal with your own emotions and, and mental health. Um, and so it's not just about the crisis that we need to be talking about. It's like, okay, we need to have better conversations about how to deal with your emotions and how to deal with mental health. So, so talk to us about that. What does that sort of mean to you? I think he's very true uh, in saying that. And I think that that's something that we, we need to do and something that I've actually very very passionate about and we we add that kind of training into the end of our, our training um because the thing is you someone said to me when i was cutting their hair when we started this all off back when i was working in my shop tommy you okay because you can't pour from an empty cup and it really stuck with me that that just that phrase you know i think god yeah because you're giving you're giving you're giving all the time you need to be able to look manage your own cup and manage your own mental well-being and see that as kind of like a level um and we all know you know about our physical health we all know how to look after our physical health we all have an idea that if we eat clean and we exercise it's pretty basic isn't it we know that we will be physically healthier we'll be slimmer we'll be more, yeah but actually when it comes to mental health do we actually really know about what what 
we need to do to keep ourselves mentally healthy. And a lot of people won't relate mental health to themselves. They think of mental health as something over there that other people have that is a diagnosable thing, like bipolar, depression, anxiety, whatever. Um, that doesn't happen to me. I don't have mental health. But with physical health, we are very much aware that it isn't just heart attacks, strokes, cancer. We, we're all aware that we all actually have mental, uh, physical health. And we all know that we wake up one day and we might have a bit of a flu or we might have a headache or we might have, and we know what to do to kind of manage that. But when it comes mm. to mental health, we don't really. And I think it's really important that we do need to start doing that. Um, it's something that I've been developing around the five key steps to mental well-being, uh, a short education program to help people look after themselves. And I think in the, we've, we've come a long way with mental health for, very quickly over a short period of time. I think that the pandemic has helped that as well, because I think most people have now realized the silver lining for me to this cloud is one of them is that, you know, um, people are now aware they all have mental health because I think it's affected everybody at some point during this lockdown. I think they may, well, they've been frontline furloughed. I don't know. Um, lost their jobs, lost family members even, then I think people's mental health has been affected. Um, so I think people are far more aware of it. And I think you could possibly ask the question, how's your mental health been post-pandemic mm. compared to pre-pandemic? Yeah, But we're mm. very much encouraging people to talk, getting people to talk, and that's the first step. But next thing we need to know is we need to do, how do you look after yourself? And how do you respond when someone does talk to you? Mm. That's really important. And you know, and that can make the big difference. That's a big, a huge difference in how that story goes or ends. Yeah. So, I know from you know a little bit of research I've done, and from what you've said to me, uh, that you've got a wife, you've got two sons, uh, that you had a business, and all of a sudden you have taken a huge step at some point in time, and you have you know, at, at huge personal financial sacrifice, you've sold your business and you've started this charity and, you know, you're putting it all on the line to, to, to do this. It's, it's, you know, become your, you know, your purpose. Um, tell us about that. That's a, that's a big, you know, I, I suppose what I'm saying is this, is that there's a lot of people that were at that funeral, at that wake, who also said to themselves, something's got to be done. Something's got to change. Someone should do something about this. But you've, you know, you've taken the, you know, the thing by the horns and, and, and you've run with it and, and you keep on running with it. Like, how do, how do you, how do you do that? How do you, you know, it's, you've turned this into your crusade in the most positive, in the most positive way that I can possibly mention. Um, that, that, that's a huge thing. Like, uh, like most people would, they don't maintain the rage is what I'm saying. How do you maintain the rage? Most people are angry. They're sad. They're upset a week, a month, six months, and then they've moved on from it and left it up to someone else to sort out. You've maintained the rage. You've, you've just built on it. It's your crusade. How do you do that? Talk to us about that. Well, um, it's one of those things that I just, I believe, I believe that we can make a difference. I believe that I can make a difference. I believe, and I know that I have made a difference. So that's, you know, that's a massive part for me. It was when, when I, when I sold my business, uh, my accountant thought I was mad. My uh, my parents 
sort of said to me, well, look, you, it's great that you're doing this. It's an amazing thing. But will you ever be able to make money from it? Because you can't just can't keep on doing it. You've got two mouths, three mouths to feed at home. Um, you know, how do you, how are you going to, how is this sustainable? Um, and I was, I was lucky when you know, I sold the business. I had the role as a global barber director for Kuhn Hair Cosmetics and as an international educator for JRL, which is like a hair tools company. And that enabled me to travel a lot, but I would go away and I'd work for like a month. I uh, go away, well, sorry, work for a week of the month, sorry. And then I would earn enough in that week to, for me to survive, my family to survive for that month to pay the rent, to pay the bills and get by, which enabled me to have three weeks of the month potentially working on the charity. Um, there are a few moments where, you know, I didn't have enough money and there was strenuous times and um i took up an opportunity to move to norway and open up an academy because it kind of uh worked with somebody and build a curriculum in hair in barbering and um that didn't work out for whatever reason um and i had to move back back to it uh, back to england i drove all the way from norway to england with my in my mini with all my stuff around me and my <laughs> and my wife flew back with three suitcases and that's all we yeah. had and we got rid of everything to move there yeah. um, and got rid of everything bought everything again <laughs> and in norway it's not cheap and moved everything back again so we had three suitcases we had a, a mini full of stuff and i was living at my mum and dad's house and i was i was we were effectively homeless, I suppose. We didn't have a, yeah. our own home, although we had our, um, um, my parents were very lucky. Uh, we're very lucky we had my parents, but there were moments there where I'd never really struggled with my mental health before I started the Lions Bible Collective, ironically. Um, and I actually had a moment when I was in Norway thinking, how will I, how can I, how, you know, we were getting into trouble financially and I was yeah. almost bankrupt. Yeah. And um, I just thought, well, how, how how can I do this? My family, how can I sort this out? And then my mind actually took to the, to the thought of suicide. Um, I never seriously considered it. I never seriously you know, had a plan or anything like that, but I, and I, I, shot, uh, I shot up in bed I'd, and just thought like how, yeah, I need to do something. So it needs to happen. But you know, this thing, I always believed that this was the right path for me is the right thing for me to do because ever since we had the impact of saving the first life with Paul, um, who's in the documentary um, since so, and was a friend of Alex. And seeing the impact that had on his parents and his family and the fact that he's now married and he just had a baby this, this past week, um, whose initials actually spell raw, which is a, which is a, I don't know whether it's a homage to the lions or not, but you know, I did notice that when he, when he announced it. Um and just seeing the impact that we can have and we can do, and now it's spreading out. And I, I had a text message yesterday from somebody who we trained um, it during the lockdown saying that I helped two people today. Those kind of things keep me going. Keep, and I just believe it's the right thing for me to do. I was put here to do this. Yeah, I was given the opportunity. I've never, I'm just saying I never had to fight hard for it, but I've never had to fight hard to convince people of the idea. Yeah, yeah. People can relate to it. People go, that's brilliant. I've spoken to my barber or as a barber or hairdresser, I've heard someone tell me that. So it's become a bit of a, it's just a mission for me now. It's, it's become a mission. It's I, I'm now in a better state financially. I will say that. And I'm not you know struggling so much anymore in that side of things. Um, but it's, it's always, I see it as a platform to help the entire nation, potentially help the, the world people, because the infrastructure of the hair and beauty industry 
it's kind of twofold. It's the men- it's the mental health suicide prevention thing, but it's also it's the impact of the hair industry and the importance of the hair industry and the impact that they have. Because I when I went into barbering and hairdressing, my I was due to go to university to higher education, but my didn't go and I went into hairdressing and they told me they were disappointed in me. Hairdressing something you do if you can't do anything else, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're not just a hairdresser or just a barber. You're so much more. And you can make a massive impact on the mental health. And mental health is a big issue. People don't, men especially, do not go to their GPs or doctors about their physical health, let alone their mental health. But they do go to the hairdressers. And I know, I know that we can make a difference to people's lives. And we can we can raise the value of the hair and beauty industry as well at the same time. So it's two things that I'm incredibly passionate about and believe in and believe that I can make a difference and essentially going forward, I want this to happen way beyond me. So my, my sort of mission is to get it into a place of sustainability that I don't have to be when I'm not here anymore or for whatever reason, it mm. still continues because I feel the importance of it is for everybody involved. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I often talk about, the journey that hairdressing takes people on. And, and it's interesting. I know lots of people that started hairdressing when they were 16 and when they're 60, they're still behind the chair doing clients and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, uh, whether they're a barber or a hairdresser. But then I also know of other people, including myself and you obviously, who have, you know, hairdressing has been a journey to take them somewhere else. And, and the hairdressing has become that, that vehicle and uh, I, I, I think that's one of the great things about hairdressing. And it's always disappointing when you, when you hear people who say stuff like that about their careers counsellors at school or, you know, their parents or whatever, you know, putting down the industry because it does open up doors in lots of different areas. Um, I, I, I read that you are also writing a, another, another book, a children's book. Uh, I wanted to ask you, is that about mental health? Yeah, so the children's book um, is actually due out in July. Um, it's available pre-order now as well. Shameless plug, but it's yeah, um, it's uh, it is about it is about mental health. the The idea, the original idea, came from uh, reading a study about the way young boys were treated in sport uh, in America, and they were playing baseball, and they found out the short or long of it is they found out that when girls missed the ball. They were they were comforted and encouraged mm-hmm. and looked after. It'll be okay, don't worry, you've got another chance, all these things. But when the boys were mishitting, they were shouted at and told to do better and you're better than this. And yeah. and it was it was a lot of high pressure for them. And it was just an interesting way of stereotypical yeah. and, and the mental health effect that that could have. And um, and I think building that thing around on the bigger picture, around failure. And, you know, letting people know that actually it's okay to fail because you tried. Mm. And the bigger picture of this whole thing outside of sports in life yeah. generally, because those who are the biggest, have the biggest success have probably failed the most and learned from it and tried again and tried again and tried again. So that's mm. kind of where the the, the backstory to the, the book is. And um, this book is actually, we changed it to, uh, it's about football, but it's a similar context. It's about that whole thing of that there's people get, you get, put pressure on to win to succeed but actually it's a bigger picture and the parents in, in the book will will yeah we'll love you anyway even if you fail and look if you fail you need to realize that you've learned something and we can always try again 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 and again and i think that kind of hit home with me being very sport related when i was younger football cricket rugby yeah, god athletics all sorts of stuff swimming mm. 
and although I, I feel I was quite lucky, my parents were very forgiving in that kind of aspect. They weren't, yeah. Uh, so I, I just think with me having two young boys, and I thought that was kind of valuable lesson that we could share around failure. Failure is an event, not a person. And it's mm. something that we will all we will all encounter in our life. And to be honest with you, all those times that we go out of our comfort zone, whether we fail or whether we succeed, they're the, they're, they're the moments of growth, aren't they? They're the moments that mm. in my life that I look back on and I go, oh my God, I'm so glad I did that, even though I was terrified. Like my TED Talk, I didn't sleep for about a year, terrified mm. about doing that, but I got on and I did it. And the worst case scenario is I could have failed, but I did it and it's it, it gave me the ability to do other things. And it really swings back to a, a, a pivotal moment for me in my career in the hair industry of I got asked to do barbering education and I said I'll do it because I always I believe in saying yes to opportunities but I was terrified I thought why why do people want to learn from me what can I tell them they don't already know what do I know that's special how can I deliver it how why would they you know why would they pay to see me all these kind of questions from my my inner voice which is the one we listen to the most but probably the meanest in our lives and I remember doing my friend's hair and had a panic attack an anxiety attack which I've never had before or since but I was absolutely I, I didn't know what was coming over me. I thought I was going to die. I literally couldn't breathe. I, I walked away, come back, and my wife actually finished his hair. She's a, she's a hairdresser as well. She, didn't, she just didn't step in. But um, I, I I went away, yeah, thought about it. I spoke to my dad and said to him, that I don't think I can do this, but I don't want to let the person who's given me the opportunity down. And he said to me, well, look, there's two things you can do. You can either say no to him. I can't do it because you're scared you're going to fail or whatever. And and he'll never ask you again to do it. That'll be it. That's the end of it. But you'll be fine because you haven't done it. And that's fine. But he said, but, or you could do it and it could go really wrong. The worst case scenario is a complete mess up and they'll never ask you to do it again. And that's the same situation. Or yeah. you go and do it and it goes really well yeah. and you, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and, it, and it did. And it went, it went well. I went off and it projected me to do stuff. And now I've traveled around the world cutting hair. And it was because of that moment of my dad and his story was he had trials to go and play for a professional football team as a goalkeeper and he never went and he said he never ever forgiven himself mm. for not going because the worst case scenario is he would have failed which he did anyway by not going yep exactly yeah that's that's a great story um i will make sure i put a link in the show notes for that ted talk uh, for people to look at because it's great i looked at it last night I, I thought it was fantastic um so i mentioned at the beginning uh that i first heard about you because of a movie you were making the movie is called the 1.7 million pound haircut uh, for our american audience that's about 2.3 million dollars okay so the title of it the 1.7 million dollar haircut uh tell us about the movie how did the movie come about why is it called the 1.7 million pound haircut it came about um we we were having lots and lots of interest as the lions barber collective from different tv production companies uh, we filmed a few pilots we wanted and it all felt a little bit reality tv it felt a little bit like let's get people in the chair and we can have conversations and we can film you like from a bit like big brother or something like that and mm. and although i felt you know it's kind of i feel it's really important to have as many of these kind of conversations in the media as possible because then it starts to break down the barrier and seeing people have these conversations on television that's the quickest way quickest medium to change yeah, you know, stigmas and taboos around certain subjects. So I was quite keen for it, but then I just thought, you know, do we want to cheapen it? And I was speaking to a local production company, um, and they said, look, we'd love to make a film with you. 
and we would love to do it and we, but we'd love to tell your story and tell you know tell the story and i think like we we've said before that you, together just off camera uh, b- before we recorded about stories being so important aren't they and that's what really does uh, people can relate to so that was that was sold by me, for yeah sold to me by them in that aspect so we went off on the journey to do it and obviously we created the the film and it, I, I felt it was really important for me there's a lot of firsts in there as well so we had Paul, who's the first life we saved. I met his parents for the first time, which was a really powerful moment uh, mm. because to see that impact, it, it it was a real it was a real point of reflection for me because I'm just so busy all the time doing so many things that we stopped and we actually reflected on the things that were happening. We were the first people to ever cut hair in a worshipful company of Barber Surgeons Hall, which has been around for 700 plus years um, back in the day. It's a livery club, so. 700 years ago when barbers were also surgeons and pulled teeth mm. and let blood and right, all the isn't it? <laughs> um, that's yeah. how it started out there and that we were the first people on record to cut hair there in the in the you know this sort of holy grail of barbering from back in yeah the, exactly yeah so, you know, that was really impactful and it I, I met alex's sister i saw her for the first time since the funeral and we had a, a very long four-hour chat, which was sort of condensed into about two minutes, I think, in the film. But um, one of the one of the sort of standout bits for us was when I was interviewing Dr. Peter Aitken, who is a former psychiatrist of the year, lead for suicide prevention here in the UK. And he told me the economic impact of each death by suicide is £1.7 million. And I just, I mean, I was kind of taken by it. In the moment in the film, I just sort of, went wow and I just I was trying to compute it in my head because I was very much aware of the emotional impact and the emotional loss and the social impact that it has between a group of friends and the heartbreak and the and the family and I'd never even considered there was an economic impact I mean obviously there is but I'd never you know I'd never even considered and then to find out that it was that much per death by suicide was just like mind-blowing to think well look why are we not spending more on prevention because if they know that and it's the biggest killer in young people then surely there should be somewhere some budget or something that we can actually put into prevention of suicide and support of mental health because you know prevention is better than cure as we all know but there is no cure for suicide and actually when people take their lives there's a huge percentage of people in their families that then go on to take their lives. And really? 70, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. And there's mm. 72% of people who take their lives haven't seen, haven't had any contact with mental health services here in the UK mm. in the 12 months previous. So they're completely unknown. It's like a needle in a haystack. So how can we, we need to do something. And in my eyes, we need to train the communities up. The communities need to know. We need to change the stigma. We need to go recognize strange behavior, ask good questions, listen, listen well, which and respond and listen well, mm. and, and and have the basic knowledge of what we can do and where we can send people because it is that needle in a haystack. And like I said, us men are rubbish at going to the doctors for our physical health, let alone our mental health. I mean, I probably our only real relationship, and Peter says it in the film, is sports fields you know, injuries on sports fields. And, you know, perhaps a Friday night after a few beers and a scuffle or a trip or a, you know, a fall or something. And that's probably the limit of it, really, for most most yeah. men. So we don't have that relationship or trust with them. But I think, you know, the communities need to work together and we need to get better and more comfortable at asking these questions yeah. to yeah. those around us. 
Okay. Um, wow. So, so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, first of all, I will, while it's on the top of my head, I will make sure I put a, a, a link in the show notes for where people can see that film, view that film. Um, because uh, it's well, it's well worth people watching. We are covering some of the information in it um, through this podcast, but uh, the film takes it all to a, to a whole nother level. Um, in the movie, and you've already mentioned it here as well. You, you, you mentioned that um, you know the barber's sometimes been referred to as you know the poor man's therapist or, or, or counselor or psychiatrist, and and then you've gone on to mention Dr. Peter Aiken, who um, you know uh, features in in the movie, and I, I was sort of taken and, and he's like this leading psychiatrist, and I was sort of taken back a bit in a really positive way when I heard him um, talk about the impact that you had on that event where you were cutting hair and talking about suicide to the audience. And, and he said um, he was excited. He said, what you're looking at is the grassroots stuff, the barber behind the chair. And he said, this is, this is really where you make a difference. This stuff actually makes a difference because it's at the grassroots stuff of, of that barber being able to ask the, the, the right questions. And it was a very powerful moment because I, you know, you often hear that said that hairdressers, barbers are, are, are sort of, you know, unpaid counselors or whatever. And to be really honest with you, that's always annoyed me. Um, I, I don't ever feel that I've sort of, uh, taken that role but i suppose in some way i have because i've i've listened and that's part of it isn't it that's actually part of it it's not about having to give all this you know uh, sage wisdom and advice it's more about just listening and uh, there was a thing in the movie uh, where, where it says that you know on average we listen as barbers and hairdressers to, to something like 2000 hours a year of listening to our clients and and that listening in itself is Therapy. It's a really important part of the whole process, isn't it? Um, I, I also, uh, again, it was on the television this morning and it was in the movie where they talked about some of the statistics and and the statistics stop you in your tracks, or they certainly do to me. Um, you know, w w one of them was that, uh, and this, this, these statistics are from the World Health Organization. And, for, and also uh, that statistic about the 1.7 million pound, that isn't just something that someone made up. That was actually from the UK Department of Health. Um, so they're very well founded when they break down why it's 1.7 million. It's, it's impressive. Um, and, and anyway, uh, the World Health Organization uh, was saying this morning on the television, one person every 40 seconds dies by suicide um, in the world globally. Um, so th this podcast will be uh, approximately an, an hour long. Um, so by the time we get to the end of it, 90 people, nine zero, would have taken their lives by the time we get to the end. I mean, it's like, you know, what does it take to make people sit up and take notice? You know, as you said, 75% of them plus will be men. Uh, it's the single biggest killer of men uh, under 45 in the UK. Uh, every 120 minutes in the UK, a man takes his own life. Every 12.3 minutes in the US, a man takes his own life. Obviously, it's more there because of the, you know, bigger population. But but these numbers are, 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 are shocking, aren't they? I mean, why do you or why does all the research think that men 
What's the reason behind why are men more likely to die by suicide? It, the, the statistics are horrendous, really, aren't they? And, and it's funny because it, it, the statistics are horrendous, but it is a rare it is a rarity at the same time. And you know, you talk about the hundred you know, every hundred twenty minutes, every forty seconds globally. But also, you know, you've got to think about some of these nations that don't recognise suicide. Yeah as well yeah. so what we went to dubai and did a government summit thing out there and and they said oh they said oh, it's really fantastic but no one takes their life here <laughs> yeah <You're> like, okay <laughs> you've solved it you've job solved done it. <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah. so, I mean, so it's that, worse than that it's worse than the numbers i, I yeah I, I believe yeah. it is i believe it yeah. is and i think that you know it is the, the reason why men there's a few reasons i feel one of them is that we're not very good at talking about it because we don't have that relationship or those safe spaces. Two, it talks about the responsibility, the, the responsibility of being able to respond well to people when they do open up and talk. Because to get that courage, especially as a as a as a bloke in the mid thirties, to say to somebody, "I'm really struggling. I need some help," is difficult enough without that person then going, "Oh, come on, mate, you'll be you'll be you need to be strong now." Or even from the women in their lives saying these things like uh, dr Brené brown did a study about about it and, and it, mm. some of the things i read back about the way that women in their lives responded to them was was appalling and i don't think it was because they were being nasty or mean it's because we're we're not comfortable with this this image yeah. or the comp those words coming out of people's mouths because we don't know how to react and i think that's the key we teach people how to react to it um because if someone opens up to you and says these things shutting them down or going oh you'll be all right or have another pint or yeah all these other things yeah. that people say we need you to be strong come on you can get through it it'll be all right in the end they, they don't help they shut people down again then they struggle by themselves and then they go and, and end up taking their own lives and also with men men teams seem to take and use methods that are more final so they will use those things that will definitely confirm mm -hmm. an end of life but eight out of ten people who uh attempt to take their own life and survive are glad they didn't die yeah. which is a, which is a phenomenal statistic which makes me think god suicide is preventable mm. and how many people who ended their life actually didn't really want to die in the moment they just wanted to be out of that situation it's not the death of the individual it's the death yeah. of the situation they're in they need mm. yeah well I, I, unfortunately i know a couple of people who who have um and you always wonder whether it was just a cry for help mm. and and you know they passed you know because of overdose or whatever but they would have liked to have uh you know for there to have been another way that, that maybe they would have been noticed more if it, they were found and people realized how serious it was as a as a cry for help for one of a, a better expression um so the lion barber collective what exactly is it? That's this charity, this nonprofit that you've started. Uh, talk to us about what is is the the Lion Barber Collective. So Lions Barber Collective was founded as a charity on December the seventeenth, two thousand and nineteen. I'll never forget that day. Uh, it was a, a long, hard slog to become a charity. Um, mm. Something I actually, I was a hairdresser, barber. I didn't know anything about the charity sector, but mm. I felt this was what we needed to do to move forward. The, the charity itself has a vision of a world free from suicide, and I believe that we need to aim for that 
because you need to aim for the best, the highest target. There's no point in aiming for one less suicide or two less. We need to aim for a world free from suicide. Um, mm. So that's going to keep us driving. And that's one of the reasons why, like I said to you before, the reason why I keep moving forward. But our mission is to create non-clinical, non-judgmental safe spaces where people feel comfortable to open up and talk about their mental health and then be able to signpost them to support and information that helps them. And that's, that's, our, that's our mission statement and our vision. We do it through two avenues one is awareness and that's things like this thank you for that because you know this podcast may reach one person and then goes and talks to their other half or goes to see a doctor yeah you never never know the reach but i think it's really important to constantly be having good stories out there about this these these things um we do lots of other things campaign social media stuff like that one of my favorite things that we do for awareness is we do pop-up barbershops which the pandemic has kind of stopped this, this past 12 months but we go to spaces like universities um workspaces colleges schools whatever and we go and cut people's hair set up barber chairs and just literally cut people's hair get them in the chair and start having a conversation and we're like why are you here then well and then we start talking about mental health and we found when we go to colleges and universities they let them know that we're a mental health charity and uh, i did one in bristol i had the highest suicide rate and these boys sat in the chair, 18 to 21, and just spoke to me openly about their mental health before I'd even asked them what they wanted done to their hair because they knew it was a safe space and they were comfortable with that. And that was that was a big eye-opener for me. But one of my favourite places to do that is at sporting events because sporting event, you could find two overweight men shirtless hugging and crying as their teams just lost the the cup or the super bowl or whatever it may be you know but outside of that environment that arena or that stadium that would be incredibly odd and you wouldn't find that level of intimacy and trust between men so we can be at these kind of spaces you know and we had lots planned to be in football stadiums cutting hair and stuff um and where they will happen they will happen once we can get back out there again, which is hopefully sooner rather than later. So that's a really that's the awareness side of things. The other thing we do is uh, is, bar- is uh, training hairdressers and barbers in mental health. So we've done stuff with mental health first aid, but also um, I worked with Dr. Peter Aitken to develop Barber Talk and Hair and Beauty Talk, which is the uh, the training that I I wanted to develop after me taking safe talk assist mental health first aid all the mental health things because i was so engrossed in it and i got there with i got some funding for for originally for mental health first aid training which is absolutely fantastic two days uh training around mental health and what to do and what each mental health thing looks like and i had space for 12 barbers to come on it and it was so difficult to get 12 barbers to take two days off to come and learn about mental health they found it very intense they found it so that led me to an idea of thinking well can we develop something ourselves that's more bespoke to the hair and beauty industry that's uh, relevant accessible usable and fun as well so that kind of led me to the barber talk model which we've used uh developed and i had the uh, yeah the eye of Dr. Peter Aitken very thankfully helped me guide me along that. But we were very, very aware that we wanted to make it hair industry language, not psychiatry language over the top. So we did that and we've worked on four pillars, which is recognize, recognize the signs that people may be struggling, recognize any change in behavior, ask, asking good questions, not you okay, how's it going? Because that doesn't really mean anything. We know that's just a greeting. Um, yeah. But asking great questions like, you know, how are you feeling today? Or 
are you really okay, Anthony? Do you, want, do you need to talk to me? Or would you like to talk to me about something? Those kind of things are giving it, giving someone, asking questions that give people permission to talk or make it feel like they'd actually want to, they want to listen to me and then listen, you know, is probably the most important one. And I think everybody could be a better listener, myself yeah. included. We could all be much better at it. And it's about not jumping in, not, you know, not being afraid of silences, not telling people I know how you feel, not telling people I understand, um, because we don't. We have, I have no idea. You know, we've all been through a pandemic globally, but I could never say I understand. I understand what it was like for you because we've all had our own experience of that. Mm. But it's about saying that I, I don't know how you're feeling, but I'd love to hear more. Please tell me how, how this has happened, or mm. I understand you've been under a lot of stress financially. What do you think could make you? you know get out of this situation what do you think you know and throwing it back to that person because we so often when we're listening to somebody we wait to hear something that we recognize we relate to or we've experienced ourselves and we hold on to that thought until they pause for breath even if they haven't finished speaking and we jump in with our own experience of that yeah. subject whatever it may be and when we're talking and that's conversation that's the way it's mm. like tennis isn't it, it goes back and forth. yeah 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 and that's why you start off talking about hair and you end up talking about knitting or something. But when we when we come to the situation of people's mental health and we've offered them that opportunity to open up, it's not about fixing and solving the issue. It's not about those wise words of wisdom. It is literally about listening and giving someone that platform to get whatever's going on in their head out of their mouth and potentially solve their own problems. And then worst case scenario, the last bit is help to help. If we need help, right now in that moment that person is suicidal or how do we help that person find the help they need we're not we're not that psychiatrist or therapist or anything like that mm. we can listen and we can signpost them to other places so the idea is that we bridge the gap between the communities we serve and the resources that are available the professionals that are out there what's available worst case scenario you can call an ambulance or the police if you can, mm. don't know what else to do or call and make plans with them call a family member but essentially you know we're connecting that community to the resources available and as i said earlier on 72 percent of those who end up taking their life haven't connected with these mental health services over here mm. because they don't know a lot of the time they don't yeah, know yeah. they exist but yeah, if we can yeah. do that we can connect them and we're on every single the infrastructure is incredible you know there's a hairdressers or barbers on every single go to the smallest villages the biggest mm. cities yeah the middle of nowhere there's always a hairdresser or a barber you know, yeah and we can connect those people and it's accessible to everybody there's no stigma or taboo going in walking into a barber shop or a hairdresser yeah. yeah if i said to you yeah so yeah. no i was i was just i'm looking at you and i mean people listening to this aren't looking at you so a lot of them don't know what you look like and i'm wondering to myself does that work to your advantage because you're six foot three six foot four whatever um you are covered in ink um you know <laughs> you're, you're a big lad you've got lots of tattoos um you know lots of jewelry uh, you know and um does that make it easier for them in in the context of do they look at someone like you and i mean this as a compliment you look like a biker do you know what I mean? Do they look at you and think, God, even he thinks about mental health? Do, do, you, know, do you know what I mean? And, and so does that work for you? Does that break it down? Does that make it easier for you to connect and engage with people, do you think? I mean, who knows? I mean, it may be. I mean, I, I've never really considered that until quite recently someone else brought that up. Mm. And, and, um, and I was always that 
don't know, I used to have a pink mohawk that was like a foot high and leopard print on the sides and all the yeah. all the traditional punk rock kind of stuff, studs and Doc Martens. And I'd still, you know, see people in the street and I'd have elderly women that would want to come and have a photo with me and touch my hair and stuff. And all my mates would be, <laughs> why, 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 why do they always want to talk to you? I said, because they look at me and I smile at them or something. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> I've always had that kind of, yeah. that kind of thing going on. But um, maybe, maybe it does help. Maybe it does help that I'm a, uh, you know, say a six foot three, tattoo, heavily tattooed bloke, uh, you know, who who potentially looks like a biker that is saying it's okay to talk about mental health. Perhaps that breaks down the stigma around yeah. it. And, you know, I think you can't underestimate the power of the right people talking about these things. Um, yeah. There was a big thing in, here in the UK when the, the, the princes mentioned uh, their mental health first time. They talked about, it was a couple of years ago now, I think, yeah. when they talked about the, the mental mm. health after Diana died. And there was statistics of, you know, around the impact of that and how many more men called in. It was shocking. I can't remember. I won't say, I won't make up statistics, but it was shocking to me at the, at the time of how many more men phoned helplines that day or that week because mm. someone like Prince William felt comfortable to do it. And I think we need to we need to be careful about the stories that are being told because there's statistics around that that came out quite recently and you know, if we tell good positive stories around suicide maybe like paul for example he went to take his life he had a conversation with us that was enough to get him back in his car and 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 feel safe and go to talk to his parents about it and now he's got his own business he's got his he's married and he's got he's got his first child yeah that's the story around yeah. suicide survivors yeah, exactly and the story, yeah. you know, those sort of stories actually will have an impact of two people the following 12 months not taking their lives because of that story in the in the local area mm. so each one of these sort of positive stories is fantastic but a negative story a sensationalized story around suicide talking about method and means and location and you know in the press and bad language around yeah. it those stories actually cause two more deaths in the further calendar year in, wow. in that but if it's okay. a celebrity, it's eight. Jesus. Okay. So we need to be, tell good stories around it. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know there's any official statistics around the positive impact of uh, of celebrities talking about mental health and talking about suicide in a positive manner and saying that, you know, you can survive and you can go on. But I'm assuming that they would have a good, if the, if those other those positive stories around me talking about something is impactful, then celebrities, I think they need to, need to start telling these stories high profile people can make such mm. a difference and i yeah. think that's so important like you said if he can talk about it then i can talk about it yeah okay uh i mean i know that you had met uh, prince william because of his own mental health charity and his own you know personal background with his losing his mum, etc and, and how he's been very open and, and talking about that which is a great thing uh for you and for the charity uh, how important is getting that sort of exposure in terms of bringing focus to what you're doing we, we are a tiny charity we are a really, really small charity. We are, you know, my, my struggles is sustainability, as I spoke about before to you in this podcast. And yeah. things like that are huge for us. It gives us credibility. It uh -huh. gives us uh, eyes on onto what we're doing. And it enables us to potentially draw more funds, get grants. Um, and I've always wanted to be... I've never wanted to be a charity that begs for donations through making yeah. people feel guilty about certain things. So I've yeah, always wanted yeah, yeah. to be a charity that raises funds through value. So a donation through value. So paying for a pop-up to come 
and that money goes back into the charity to to run or training or we're actually going to be opening lions barbershops coming up soon um mm-hmm. we've got two locations one's definitely happening one's in in talks but the idea is that location you're going to go in you're going to have a haircut not only is the barber going to be trained not only is it going to be an amazing experience first, first and foremost it's going to be a great haircut and a great barbershop mm-hmm. but when you pay for that haircut after paying the barber any profits are all going back to the back to the charity to make the charity sustainable to train wow. more barbers to train more so that's that's the kind of model i want to do but we obviously but getting eyes on what we're doing, mm. things like that, the recognition from uh, Theresa May when she was Prime Minister of a Points of Light Award, um, any kind of press, any kind of stuff like this, any kind of eyes on what we're doing. And I always ask, you know, there's two ask. If you're a barber or a hair professional, get on our website, do the Barber Talk Light training. That's the first starting point. It's free. It takes 15 minutes. It'll give you a taste of what we're about and it'll give yeah. you some skills. If mm. you're a, If you're not a barber or a hairdresser, tell your barber or your hairdresser that we exist mm. tell them that ask them have they done the training do they know about us go yeah. on the and you know if we can do that from those two angles and you know essentially from my point of view i think that this simple training three and a half four hours should be in the curriculum at some point when we're teaching hair because we're taught about phys- we're taught about physical health we're taught about ringworm we're taught about head lice we're taught about mm. psoriasis all these lovely graphic images in the training yeah, book yeah and you know I- i've come across that a handful of times in 20 years cutting hair mostly hair lice head lice on children other than that a bit of psoriasis maybe alopecia every now and then i'm mm. dealing with people's mental health every single day they sit in the chair it's good or yep. bad and they're telling us these things and yeah why and, and the barber talk training the recognize ask listen help is the listening skill alone is worth <laughs> worth the training because they're going to have these conversations whether they like it or not they're going to come across loss of a family member they're going to come across divorces they're going to come across affairs they're going to come across all these kinds of things so they should have that little bit of training there because we all have mental health we all have a brain and i think that we can make such a huge impact if we do that and i think for us that's the that's the holy grail for me get it yeah. into the curriculums get it into the hair and beauty industry i mean it doesn't even have to be hair and beauty it could be any industry because it's skills that anyone could take on yeah yeah exactly i was going to ask you you've sort of touched on it i was going to ask you how are you financed as a charity yes yeah, so is, is it all char- through donation yeah donation yeah so it's all through it started off from nothing um uh, and it's just donation to be honest with you like we we haven't done like loads of fundraising sort of campaigns and donations and stuff it's like i said i've always been like i want to try and get grants for things so like yep. apply for so we've had we've worked with the nhs national health service and health education mm-hmm. england and public health service and lot national lottery have given us but we've done grants for things and you know i'd love to get to a point where we would um some of the the big hitters in the hair and beauty industry would start funding some of this training to look after the look after their people that are selling their products and look after the people who are using their products at the end because mm. i think the hair and beauty industry has been hit so hard during the pandemic financially and mentally i think it's yeah it'd be great if we could provide more of it for them for free really yeah no it's 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 interesting men are often portrayed as not sharing emotions and problems with other men what i'm leading to is this because you're a barber and therefore or hairdresser and therefore you're touching them does that 
break down barriers that gets them to open up that that just that physical fact that you're touching them what are your thoughts about that i would say 100 percent. it makes a big difference people can sit in our chairs and we can have a relationship with them for 20 years or we can have a relationship with them for 20 seconds they've just literally sat down and there's something about that human contact that we've had less and less in the last yeah, you know, in time especially like i said the last 12 months of the pandemic but we haven't had that human touch and, and we have a license to touch in heronstry which is mm. I, I mean i've fondled hundreds of beards in my life i've run my hands through <laughs> hundreds of men's hair you know that's a, you know, <laughs> not many there's not many situations that that happens you know like, yeah yeah not many people would let touch your face neck ears hold a cutthroat razor against your neck and pay for yeah. the pay for the pleasure sure. of it it just it, there's something about that and the oxytocin that's released from human contact um, yeah, there's a feel good, the feel good drug, the love drug, they call it, don't they? The love hormone. It's, yeah. it, it releases that feel good. And that's another reason why you feel so good after you've had a haircut or a massage or whatever. It's not just the, the physical thing of that treatment. It's also that human contact, which is so vital. And I had a guy who actually I had, had cut his hair on July the 4th, which they called trim dependence day here um, in the UK. And he was fine when I was cutting his hair. When I had a consultation with him. As soon as I started cutting his hair, he broke down and he cried. And I stopped and asked him, is everything okay? Was there a reason why you're crying? Do you want to talk to me? You know, all these kind of questions. And he just said, I hadn't, I haven't been touched for months because I live by myself. I have had no other human contact for months. And there'll be loads of people across the world that are having that interaction right now. I think we need to, we need to realize the, the impact of that. It's that trust and intimacy combined with the familiar stranger role that we have. I'm, I'm your best friend. I've known you for 20 years, but I don't see you outside of this barber chair. So you yeah. know that anything you talk about in this area is not going to go back to your, your mate, your mum, your sister, your brother, whoever. It's, this, it's a really, really strange role. We hold that huge, I don't know, privilege mm. of intimacy and touch, but also that weird friendship where... Well, your best friend for 30 minutes every every three weeks or something yeah yeah you walk away and i think this combination of those two things that really make a difference yeah i i think that you know thinking about what you've been talking about that the very act of cutting someone's hair is in in itself it's about mental health because it's their self-image it's their appearance that they come in looking like shit you know they walk out looking great feeling yeah. better about themselves or well, that's the ultimate goal anyway so even right. if no words transpire between the two the very act of doing someone's hair is is um is about addressing at some level their mental health and their self-image and how they feel about themselves uh, i i have a we need to start heading towards um wrapping up but i have something that's always you know, I've often reflected on it because i was listening to an interview once with a woman who was talking about suicide and she was saying how suicide is usually referred to as an incredibly selfish act, you know, when someone takes their own life because of the, the damage it does to everyone that they leave behind. And she was talking about the terminology around suicide, and she said that we shouldn't say they committed suicide because it's all about mental health and, and that we should say instead that they died by suicide. And, and she went on to say that we don't say, for example, they committed cancer 
or they committed a heart attack because both of those things are a disease. But suicide, suicide and, and mental health issues are also a disease. So that, you know, that just that change in terminology, and, and I've often reflected on that as to, is that right or not? What, what, what are your what are your thoughts about that? I've never forgotten about those 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 words, and you know that that we do look upon it as being a selfish act. Um, but when someone is in that state, when they're in that torture, that suffering from that disease, that mental health issue, they're not thinking of it like that. So, uh, what, what are your thoughts about that terminology? Well, we talk about selfish. I think most people in that moment are the complete opposite of that. They're thinking that everyone would be better off without them. Yeah. That's what they think they're doing everybody a favor. They think that the world would be better off without them in it for whatever reason that may be. And I wouldn't, yeah, I don't think they're thinking about the impact it may have in a negative way. They're thinking about, and a lot of people have this euphoric moment where they think, oh, that's it. That's what I can do. That's what I can make everything better for everyone else. Um, and when we talk about committed, um, I know that it used to be a crime up until quite recently. Yeah. So you you committed suicide, like you committed a crime. And if you attempted suicide and you failed, you were instantly arrested, which I wouldn't have thought would be the best place for somebody who's struggling mentally wow. um, yeah. at that moment. So that's one of the reasons why that that language has to change around it, um, around the committed. And we need to just, I think we need to soften up language around these kind of things and it is there's a lot of that has happened we're much more aware and i think we're living in a time where things are moving forward and i think things are progressing um i'm not saying everything's perfect because it's not but we've got to keep yeah. going but people are starting to listen people are starting to take changes people are starting to make a difference and i think people are starting to realize the power they actually have for mm. positive i mean there's a lot of great things happening and i think change suicide and mental health is at the forefront of people of conversation right now Mm, yeah, definitely. I know I surround myself with it, and I know I talk about it every single. Oh no, day. it is anyway. It is anyway. I was saying this to my wife the other day about, um, uh, you know, my daughter, uh, very openly talking to us about her mental health, and it's just and it's just the most natural, easy thing for her to do. And you know, ten years ago, that would never have happened. Um, and COVID has certainly brought that to the fore. But I also think it's a it's a generational change, which is a good. Uh, a good generational change. Um, look, I, I have one question to ask you. I'm, I'm going to uh, put links in the show notes to refer people to your website, to get them to watch the movie, um, uh, you know, the the TED talk that you did, did, et cetera. But in the event that they don't do any of that, what is the one thing? In other words, I'm, I think I'm asking you, what is the what are the words that they should remember to say if they're standing behind a chair with a client and they sense that that client is troubled, what is it that they should say? What's the words that they should say to them to, to inquire about that? Because I think it's that fear of getting it wrong and, and that client turning around and going, what? Like, who are you to, you know, I think it's that that sort of gets in the way sometimes of of stopping people going that next next step. Uh, so, 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 what would you suggest that they that they said that this is what you should say if you've got a client in your chair and and for whatever reason you're feeling that they are troubled? You know, um, what should you say to them? 
Well, firstly, I think it, that's the fear of getting it wrong or the fear of upsetting somebody or the fear of them saying, yes, I am feeling this way or, uh, and then not knowing what to say. It's the fear for ourselves that stops these conversations happening and stops these questions happening. And these questions yeah. are life-saving. Everybody I've actually asked about suicide and has said, yes, is still alive. There's yeah. people I wish I'd asked. Yeah. But, you know, starting off with questions like, how are you feeling today, Anthony? Mm. Things like that. Just that's a gauge. Yeah, I've noticed you're not yourself. How are you feeling? Those kind of things will just get you start off. And if people start saying things like, oh, I just can't go on. I've had enough. I don't want to be here anymore. And you, I've probably heard people say that before. Yeah. I'm sure probably all of us have had people say that. Yeah, that's yeah. when you need to start really asking, do you, do you really mean that? Yeah. Ask that question. Are you, are you suicidal? Are you thinking about taking your life? Don't be scared to ask that question. That question does not cause suicide, does not put the idea in someone's head, but it can be the green light. Like I said, everyone I've asked that question to is still alive today. And just think, just remember, you don't have to fix or solve anything. Mm. Don't tell them you understand. Don't tell me how they feel. Let them talk. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, where can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? So Instagram is Tom Chapman Hair. Uh, social uh, Twitter is Here's Tommy, and you can you go to the Lions Barber Collective, the Lions Barbers. Look for that. That we all come up with everything on there. Um, and like I say, if you do anything after this, go and do that free online training. It takes you 15 minutes, and it'll give you some insight into recognize ask listen and help that you can take away and imply just in case you you need it. Yeah, and and it's important to say that Lions Barber Collective is a global organization isn't it it's not just a uk centric thing yeah how many countries yeah. are you in so we've had so we've had people take the training all over the place as far away as hawaii sydney kenya literally people have done the online training all over the place and we're in conversations at the moment with people in canada and america and australia about bringing barber talk um and hair and beauty talk to those countries as well great okay uh barber talk is tom's uh, podcast as well yeah, so I want to steer you towards his Instagram channel. I want to steer you towards Lions Barber Collective. I'll put all these links in the show notes um, and and highly recommend that you take the time to, to check it out. So to wrap up, Tom Chapman, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I could keep talking to you for ages, but unfortunately, we have to bring this uh, episode to a close. So thanks for being the guest today, Tom. Thank you ever so much. It's an honor and a privilege. And I've had a fantastic time chatting with you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.